So, good morning. morning. So, did you enjoy that? You did? It couldn't have been a better introduction, actually, to what I'm going to speak about today, which is asceticism and self-control, (laughs) self-denial, punishing the body. So, that's what we were just doing, okay? That was asceticism. Well, wait till you've heard the talk, Chris. You may possibly be jumping to conclusions. So, well, last night uh, we, we, we introduced this idea of the horizon of Christ. The horizon, which is this point, this line where the earth seems to meet the sky and we can move towards it, it can even be measured up to a point. Uh, it's variable, but it's, uh, the more we go to it, the horizon recedes. And that's the way of understanding the mystery of Christ. We enter into it, we go towards it, we never grasp it, we never understand it, we never possess it. And that's, I think, at the heart of what, we, what I was talking about last night is the, the mystical dimension of Christianity. And as Rome Williams has pointed out in that great talk he gave on contemplation at the, at the center of the Christian identity and vocation and evangelization, you know, this, this is how we have to, this is what we have to recover. And this was John Main's vision. It's why we're here um, this weekend. So I'd like to um, take this idea of the horizon a little further um, and try to see how we move towards the horizon or how we move into the mystery. And part of it is, is a, a movement. Uh, life is about movement, about change, evolution. On the one hand, we get bored, we want change. On the other hand, we want to control everything and, and, uh, and uh, control change. Uh, but it's also about perception, not just uh, physical change or change of location, or, but it's about or change in the phase of your life, whether you're retired or not, and so on. It's more about perception and uh, to see Christ. What we shall be like, we do not know, but we do know that we shall be like him because we shall see him as he truly is, St. John says. So, and I think uh, in the Christian tradition, wisdom tradition, uh, asasis is an essential part of that process of refining our perception, of purifying the heart so that we can see God, and changing, being open to that transformation. What we will be like, we don't know. We can't predict the future, but we do know something. We know that we will become like him because we shall see him as he is. And this means that we cannot see him as an object, just something we think about or observe, something we put on a pedestal or some little god with a small g. We can never know God in that way. We can only know God not as an object, but by sharing in God's own self-knowledge.
Saint Irenaeus said that a long time ago. So, and what is the self-knowledge of God? What is the self-knowledge of God? Oh dear. <laughs> what? The I am, yes. Love. Mercy. The word, grace. Compassion. All, all true. Yeah, and the Holy Spirit. Yes, this, the, the one who, who knows uh, a person's spirit, who, who knows a person except that person's own spirit within them, St. Paul says. And the same is true of God. Who knows God except the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. And this is the spirit we have received in our mortal bodies. So we have received the self-knowledge of God. In that sense, we've become friends with God. This is a revolutionary moment in human religious experience uh, and understanding of God when Jesus at the Last Supper says, I, I call you servants no longer. You call me Lord and Master, and rightly so, for that is what I am. But I call you, I don't call you servants anymore. I call you friends because I've shown you everything that I have learned or received from the Father, yes. So the complete self-giving, the complete self-knowledge of Jesus to us in the Spirit is, of course, the complete self-knowledge of God. That's the Christian mystery, that's the Christian revelation. So, uh, within that uh, understanding of the early, you know, of, of the essential understanding, self-understanding of Christian faith, um, the early Christians developed a way or ways of trying to understand how we grow in that, how we fully open ourselves to it, how we, how we fulfill our potential. John Main used to say the, 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 the great curse of, of modern Christianity is that we so much underestimate our, the wonder of our, of our faith, of, our, of, our, of the revelation. So the early Christians, of course, formulated it, building on the wisdom of other traditions as well, but they formulated it in, in th in particularly in three, three ways, three ways in which we can approach the horizon of Christ, three ways in which, which are our help us to our, our, our sort of vehicles or mediums for uh, uh, seeing the mystery of Christ. And that is prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. Three ways. Prayer, <coughs> fasting, and almsgiving. So, I'd like to look at these, uh, the, the, uh, these uh, concepts, particularly under the heading of asasis. A, uh, a couple of years ago, I think a couple, some of you were, here, were there, we had a uh, seminar, or a week-long um, seminar, I suppose, at Sant'Anselmo, uh, the Benedictine University in Rome, on the monastic tradition of meditation. Uh, it was a wonderful week, and we'll do it again um, uh, one year, maybe next year. 
Um, we were going to have it this year, by the way, but we, for various reasons, we weren't able to. So we're having on when is it? Uh, what day is it? Wednesday. On Wednesday, we're having a, a, a one-day event seminar on new forms of community at uh, the Meditatio Centre in London. Um, some really excellent contrib contributors, uh, including some people from the Archbishop of Canterbury's uh, St. Anselm's community at Lambeth Palace, some young people who are spending a year there, and some people from Lache, the, the Jean Vanier's Lache. So um, if you're around and free on Wednesday, uh, the seminar, that, that will be... Uh, that would be there. So, uh, but during that seminar we had at Saint Anselmo, we um, we had a wonderful talk on uh, the asceticism of prayer by an Italian monk, uh, Brother Guidalberto Bormelini, and uh, I think his talk is up online. But uh, so I, I was so impressed by it. And what was really impressive about it was that he was hear a talk like the monastic asasis of prayer and you look to see if there's another workshop you can go to. <laughs> but in fact, he was, he was one, of the, one of the best speakers, the most lively, joyful, light and uh, engaging uh, speaker at the whole thing. And uh, clearly he had, he had understood what he was saying and he was saying what he had discovered uh, about the meaning of asceticism. So just, you, you can, so I've, I'm using some of his, the framework, some of his, his talk, uh, this, for this talk. So I looked up uh, Asasis uh, on the internet, and I found two, the first two entries, one was a, a dictionary definition, the practice of severe self-discipline, typically for religious reasons. <laughs> So that's what it isn't, but that's how it is perceived. So we have to make sure we're not caught up in that uh, false definition. It's a bit like, well, the opposite in a way, but a bit like the World Health Organization definition of health, which is um, a condition of complete well-being in, in body, mind, and I don't say spirit, but in a very complete well-being, and f uh, as well as a complete freedom from uh, pain, suffering, or aches and pains. Well, it's, it sounds wonderful, but it's completely unreal. You know? <laughs> who, will, who has ever been healthy or could ever be healthy in that way? So you have complete well-being and, and nothing wrong with your body at all. So um, we have to be very careful about these definitions because we sort of hear them and we swallow them, but uh, they can be very misleading. Anyway, the second entry uh, on Google was, strangely enough, a little bit closer to the truth. And it was, surprisingly enough, the name of a marketing agency. <laughs> I can't imagine how anyone would name their company Asasis, but presumably because nobody knows what it means. It, and, and this company defines itself as the full-service marketing agency built for ambitious, like-minded brands 
to drive demand and generate high returns, high returning business outcomes. <laughs> and that actually is a little closer to asceticism, uh, as the Christian uh, tradition understands it, than severe self-discipline, typically for religious reasons. So, uh, we have to be clear about what asceticism is. And a good guide to that is John Main's uh, insight that the essence of Christian, that prayer is the essential asasis of the Christian life. Now, of course, it depends what you mean by prayer. Well, he's speaking from a tradition, the contemplative tradition, as it evolved from the monastic wisdom, the desert uh, teachers. Uh, so prayer, when they spoke about prayer, they spoke primarily, almost inevitably, about the prayer of the heart, about contemplative prayer. That, for them, was what prayer meant, pure prayer. For various reasons, that isn't, how, that isn't our uh, initial uh, understanding of prayer when we speak about it today, or most people on the street would not understand prayer in that way. They would think about prayer as going to church or praying for something when you've missed your bus or uh, you get a bad diagnosis from the doctor. So, so I think it's important that we understand what we mean by prayer, primarily as this oratio pura, the prayer of the heart. So prayer is the essential asasis of the Christian life. And I think if we are going to recover a proper understanding of this essential element of the Christian life and identity, our movement into the mystery of Christ, our clarity about the horizon, then we have to, um, we have to recover this contemplative uh, experience. We have to see that it belongs at the center of Christian identity. It's not an add-on. It's not, it's not as um, one parish priest uh, reported uh, reportedly said uh, to some of his parishioners, oh yes, we have that meditation group, it's our group of navel-gazers. <laughs> yeah. So, it's not navel-gazing, it's not just stress reduction, it's not narcissism in a spiritual way, it is an asasis. And I think all of us here have, are here because we have engaged with that asasis, with that discipline of the prayer of the heart. So, what, if, we, if we get that, if we, if we can approach the whole meaning of asasis in the Christian life from this experience of meditation, then I think it begins to fall into place. Otherwise, we think of asasis as something that is meant to devalue sensual pleasure, pleasure, in order to help us to concentrate on the spiritual life. Much closer to the truth is what the, the old rabbi once said, that we, on the day of judgment, we will be held to account for every legitimate pleasure we did not accept. 
that's much closer to the biblical idea of creation and it's much closer to the Christian idea of asasis as well. There's nothing puritanical about Jesus or his teaching. Despite his 40 days in the desert and his offering of himself uh, on the cross, there is nothing self-lacerating, nothing self-negating, nothing self-punishing or puritanical about Jesus. No fear of pleasure. What was his first miracle? Yes. Yes. Making sure there was enough wine at the wedding to keep people merry. So, um, so let's, let's, let's try and understand what asasis means then. In the first letter of Peter, he says, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your souls. Easily misinterpreted. Easily hijacked by the puritanical self-alienated mind. A false religion. But very true when we understand that the purpose of this journey we are on is to come closer to the horizon, to enter into the horizon, as it were, and to see it. And so we, we, our relationship to the world has to be, our lifestyle, if you like, has to be consistent with that priority. With that priority. Again, Uh, John Lane suggests this by the way he speaks about meditation. That's why he insists, and some people don't like it. They don't like, you know, they think he's telling them what to do. Uh, To meditate twice a day. Now, he also said, this may take you 20 years to develop a daily daily practice. But it's, it's the goal worth pursuing. Because uh, by integrating these, these contemplative times, this contemplative work in your daily life, balancing each day, and balance, asceticism is very much about balance and integration and harmony, by balancing the day on these two flexible pillars of contemplation, our life is moving towards that horizon with greater clarity and precision. St. Paul, in the first letter of the Corinthians, uses the word asasis when he's talking about the Christian life by comparison with the uh, training of athletes. The word asasis was used, well, it, could, it was, askeo means a training for war, so military training, uh, but asasis was also used for athletes, so what athletes do and like to do, and love to do. So he said, run in such a way to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training, asasis. They do it in order to get a crown, a gold medal, that will not last. But we do it for a prize that will last forever. 
So he's using this as an analogy, even the idea of competitiveness uh, as an analogy. Uh, competition is good. We have become maybe too competitive in our economy. We've taken a good thing that helps us to improve, to keep us on the ball, to, to, to sharpen our, uh, our performance. We've taken a, a good uh, principle of competitiveness and we've turned it into something ruthless and obsessive and compulsive and basically unjust, as we, I was saying last night, creating vast disparities between wealth and, poor and poverty. So we'll look, at, we'll look a little later at um, what the desert teachers understood by the passions and the passions which we have to control through asceticism are not in themselves bad things like competitiveness, but they can become bad when they get out of control, when we lose self-control over them. And clearly that's what's happening in our very unbalanced world at the moment. Self-control is one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Self-control is Therefore, one of the things that we find ourselves a little better able to do because we are building these times of meditation into our daily life. Even though nothing happens during our meditation, the fruits of the Holy Spirit, the harvest of the Spirit, begins quietly, subtly to grow. We may not be the first people to be aware of that, inner change, but it will be reflected in our behavior and primarily in all our relationships, especially our relationship or primarily uh, to begin with our relationship with ourselves. I think this is very important for our work and work we, we share as a community in teaching meditation and sharing this gift because most people today will come to meditation and perhaps many of us came to it as well with the idea that it's some kind of uh, technique that we have to master and we're not good at it because we're very distracted. Therefore we give up or, and you know, I hear many people say, um, yes, I, you know, I meditate, uh, but I'm a very bad meditator. Well, I suppose it's better than saying I'm a very good meditator. <laughs> but. <laughs> It doesn't really matter whether you're a good meditator or a bad meditator. It's, it's not about that kind of judgment, not that kind of competitiveness. Um, so, uh, this, the, 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 the gift of self-control is the primary sort of uh, element in asasis. That's why we speak about meditation not as a technique, that you have to master, but as a discipline that you follow. And it's a, it's a big difference. I don't think people understand it at the beginning uh, when we teach meditation to these MBA students. Uh, we point this out at the beginning. I don't think they get it until six or so weeks later and they have begun to uh, They've begun the discipline, they've begun the asasis, some better than others because of 
differences in human personality and conditions of life. Uh, but most of them get into some kind of daily practice. So they're beginning to understand, and we, but there's a lot of work needs to be done in correcting, especially these highly competitive, success-oriented young people, to control their idea of success, that they've got to succeed. This would be the, you know, a, a, pervers a perversion of the, of the self-control or, or the self-mastery or the, or the um, whole principle of competitiveness. Every, and this, is, this, is, uh, this understanding, this wisdom, this prudence, is really at the heart of the monastic wisdom. And we find this monastic wisdom in every civilization. Every civilization in history has produced some form or other of monastic life. Once it's reached a certain degree of sophistication or complexity, it produces this. I don't think it, they, you know, there were many monks at the time of the Neanderthals. Uh, but, uh, but as civilization develops, uh, monasticism seems to emerge, different forms, of course. And it emerges uh, with some kind of withdrawing from the world, not necessarily a complete withdrawal, but some principle of, of stepping back, and at the same time of integrating the world. There would be a false monasticism that just rejected the world entirely and condemned it as you know, a, a second-rate uh, life option. The principle at, at work here, the word monos, which monk also means mon uh, one, uh, has both the sense of being solitary, but also the sense of being unified, integrated. So, at the heart of that monastic wisdom is the, the, the attraction to and the need for a unification of the self, of the whole person, body, mind and spirit. And the body here is seen as a temple, of course, in Christian terms, as a sacred thing, a sacred space. The most sacred space in the world is not the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem, which is one of the most unsacred places in the world. As you can tell every Holy Saturday night when monks who are running it uh, start fighting with each other. Uh, the, the real meaning of the temple, and this is at the heart of Christian scriptures, is not the building, but the person. And the person is embodied. And therefore, your temple, your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. And you are the church. You are the temple of, of, of Christ, built together, each of you a, a brick and a, you know, a bit in this living, organic, spiritual reality of the body of Christ. That is the church. So, in this monastic wisdom, uh, often stereotyped or... Hollywoodized to some kind of self-laceration uh, or doing you know, d denial of the pleasures of life and so on in order to inflict pain or suffering upon uh, oneself, 
Uh, quite the reverse. The purpose of the monastic wisdom is to integrate the whole person. The body is therefore spiritualized, not rejected. It is brought into the spirit, and the spirit is that dimension of reality where there is unity, peace. Where the spirit is, there is unity, St. Paul says. The unity uh, that transcends but doesn't dissolve the particular, the particular. So we still have a body. We will always have a body, although the form of that body, uh, as you can see by looking at your photograph album, changes. But the body, we will always be embodied beings. The, um, somebody once asked uh, one of the fathers of the church, I forget who it was now, said, who, who, who is closer to God, angels or human beings? And the response was, angels are closer to God at the moment, but human beings are more like God because we have a body. It's quite a mysterious, challenging thought. Because we have a body, we are more like God. That's the religion of the incarnation. So the whole person, the whole human being, was created in the image of God. So there isn't a war between the body and the spirit. If there's a war, it may be a conflict between body and mind, but there's no war between body and spirit. And the purpose of asceticism, of a spiritual life and lifestyle, is to recover that lost harmony, that lost unity between them. What breaks that unity is what they call the passions. And the passions were seen as a form of enslavement, as we would think of addiction. Addiction to shopping, addiction to drink or drugs or TV or pornography or uh, whatever. Anything that reduces our freedom, and we live in a very addictive society, we speak about freedom all the time, become a devalued term because of the way politicians use it. You know, they tell us in order to make us more free, we, our civil liberties will be restricted. Uh, so we, we are um, very conscious today, I think, of the, of the need to be free. The early Christian uh, teachers of this freedom from the passions, which are the disordered natural energies or functions of, of our minds or bodies. Um, those early teachers used examples like the, the, the Greek myth of Sisyphus, you remember, who was condemned for some reason to roll this big heavy boulder up to the top of the hill and just as he got to the top of the hill it slipped out and rolled to the back, uh, rolled back to the uh, bottom of the hill, and he had to continue this destructive, painful, miserable existence of repetition, a good definition of addiction, to keep on doing the same thing, thinking that you're going to achieve something, but you are, it only gets worse. Or Tantalus, who deceived the gods 
and was condemned to stand immersed in water up to his chin, but could never drink any of that water, because as soon as he put his head down to drink it, the water receded. So these were mythical symbols of the state of enslavement stuck in self-destructive patterns of unfulfillment. What could be more frustrating than you know, not to achieve those simple goals? Lao Tzu said there is no worse calamity than the unrestrained increase of need. I think we should put that over the World Bank and the Chancellor of the Exchequer and, and so on. There is no worse calamity than the unrestrained increase of need. Consumerism, the disparity between the rich and the poor, something we are in denial about you know, most of the time. But that is, um, the, 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 this is the, these are examples of this loss of integral harmony, this loss of peace. Uh, and there is no justice without peace. So it's necessary for the Christian contemplative to bridge the gap, to restore that harmony between body and spirit, but the ramifications of that extend into our physical, social, political, economic world. We cannot be a true Christian contemplative without being a contemporary and without being in some way, according to our capacity or our calling, involved and concerned. The one thing we have to be very, very self-critical about, all of us, is uh, denial. Is to deny the, the, the reality uh, of injustice around us. So then it's necessary for our, the Christian contemplative, as Christ did, to bridge the gap between body and spirit to restore that harmony and in so doing restore our, our relationship healthy relationship to the world there's a interesting and I think it seems to me uh, accurate um, explanation of the political crisis that the world has suddenly descended into or has caught up with us. Um, you know, the po politics of populism, the election of... Uh, <laughs> people like that. Uh, that behind it, there is a huge resentment. A resentment that's been growing up for decades. Um, the resentment which has strangely enough been hidden I think by consumerism and by the addictions of our, of our culture but a resentment that is breaking out in anger and self-destructiveness I've met many intelligent people who told me in the States who told me they were voting for Trump because and, and uh, we won't go into English politics because we're too divisive but say in, in the States um, because they said this is the only thing we can do because he's an outsider, he's not part of the Washington swamp and we need change well, how desperate can you get? 
I mean, but, but it shows... So then there's, you know, there, there, these are people who would be very critically aware of his limitations, but uh, there are also a good number who have been, you know, are brainwashed. 40% of American population believe, you know, despite universal education, believe in literal creationism, seven days of creation. So, a failure of a failure of, of, of a major social policy. Anyway, so uh, when we meditate, rather than thinking of it as a technique we have to master and be good at so that we have no more distractions, let's think of it as beginning a relationship. And what do you feel when you begin a relationship, a friendship? You don't know where that's going to take you. There's, a, there's an attraction, there's something good about the sharing and getting to know people. You don't quite know where that's going to go, but it's good in itself. And you talk about a successful relationship. Well, relationships, friendships, marriages, community relationships have their ups and downs. There are good days and bad days for everyone. So. Far better, I think, to think of as a model, rather than thinking of meditation as a technique we master, to think of it as a relationship in which we are growing and learning and enjoying the friendship as it develops. And that's why we'll be able to see the fruits of meditation in our relationships. That's how we see them, first of all. And you won't be then analyzing every meditation you do and say, oh, that was a really terrible meditation and maybe I'm no good at this, I'm going to give up. Your, your, your perspective, your view of the horizon will be clearer and, and, and your, your, your vision will be further, will see further than the immediate effect of meditation on you after one or two sessions. You'll begin to see the whole framework of your life benefiting from this. So, and I, so as I say, our, as our relationship with ourselves, our own bodies, begins to, to, um, to, to heal, as we recover this lost harmony between body and spirit, our relationship with ourselves, of course, inevitably, begins to affect our relationship with other people people you live with, the people you work with, and the people you don't live and work with, the people you meet as strangers on the bus, or, or the people that through modern media we know are our brothers and sisters, despite the fact they live in North Kensington, not South Kensington. Or that they live in, in Syria and not in uh, Surrey that we still know that these are our family, our brothers and sisters. We are in relationship to them. And that, 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 that isn't just an ideological or political uh, point. Of course, it can be devalued into that. But it's a, it's a mystical perception. This is the horizon of Christ expanding to, to, for us to be able to see everything and everyone within that mystery of Christ. 
So we've seen, and there's been a lot of uh, economic debate about austerity, how austerity inevitably hits the poor most painfully. But a cesis is, is, is not austerity in that sense. A cesis is the universal self-control that reduces the gap between the body and the spirit, and therefore reduces the gap between us and them. The word passion, uh, which the purpose of the asceticism, is to overcome the passions. And the word passion, coming from the Greek meaning to suffer, uh, are not in themselves bad, but they are disordered or extreme versions of things that are in themselves good. These are tools created by God which the spirit has lost control of, like competitiveness, like lust, compared with the natural and good uh, uh, energy of of, uh, sexual desire. Nothing wrong with sexual desire, but there's something clearly wrong when you get, when it becomes obsessive, compulsive, or leads to abuse or rape or uh, objectification of others. Lust. The passions then take away our vision of the horizon. They take away our peace, our clarity, and our freedom. They produce what the Indian uh, scriptures call avidya, or ignorance, or blindness, spiritual blindness. So the first step in meditation is to heal the passions. Not to punish them, because they are punishments. They're self-induced punishments. Maybe we want, in a sense, to blame for them, for whatever the reason. Why do you get a cold? Because I was sitting next to somebody on the train who had a cold. Maybe I should have moved to another, <laughs> another place, but I didn't. Now, who's to blame? Isn't it? So it's not a question of blaming. It's a question of healing. Meditation heals the passions and restores the the natural function behind them. They give us, it gives us a sense of purpose and aim. It helps us to aim more accurately and to know what we are heading towards, what is our destination, what is the horizon. The word for sin in Greek, hamatia, means to miss the mark. It's to aim, but not hit the target. So, asasis helps to restore us to that uh, focus and to get back on target. Asceticism in the Christian life, particularly in Western Christianity, uh, often got out of control. It became seen as a way of self-punishment, punishing the passions because we had these bad inclinations or bad forms of behavior, we needed to be punished. But in fact, if we go back to the um, early uh, early Christianity, particularly early Christian monasticism, we see a very different understanding of asasis. We see a great respect among the church fathers, for example, for the ascetical practices 
of the, what we call the East. Of course, most of those fathers were Eastern as well, Eastern European or Middle Eastern, but uh, even further East, Asian. So today, you know, it's still in many Christian circles, if you use the word yoga, then that's, you know, you won't be invited back. Uh, you know, you're worshipping the devil and this, this, this fear of anything Eastern or Asian. Well, that's very, very, uh, host very um, alien to the uh, attitude of those early Christian teachers. Um, up to the Middle Ages, anyway, people like St. Jerome, even, or Clement of Alexandria, or Augustine, Tertullian, Origen, they recalled pre Christian ascetical practices from pre-Christian island, the Celtic world, or Persian, or Greek, or Indian. They had a great respect for these, uh, for these practical wisdoms. And uh, they understood the, the, the need for, for specific practices that would uh, facilitate the reharmonizing, recovering the lost harmony between the body and the spirit. The alternative to that, I mean, Thomas Keating said to me that once when he went into the monastery, I think he went in during the war, uh, to a Trappist monastery in the States, uh, he said the, the, the prevailing idea was that the purpose of the, of the life in the monastery was to come as close as you could to God through suffering. The more you suffered, the closer you came to God. Now, you had to be careful. If you suffered too much, then, you know, you would, you would uh, you'd, you'd push yourself out of the race. But you had to push yourself to suffer. So he said, and this was, you know, Trappist life was pretty austere anyway, but they used to compete with each other, he said. Uh, how much they could give up, how, much, how little food they would eat, and so on. So much so that I think in his first or second year, the abbot noticed he was, he was getting sick and uh, insisted during Lent that he ate a bar of chocolate every day. <laughs> and he said he felt a total failure. He had you know, he'd failed in, this, in his, his asceticism. So, but that isn't, that is a perversion or a distortion of the of the ancient Christian understanding of um, asceticism. The body was seen to be part of the spiritual journey and it needed to be harmonized. It was an instrument uh, like a, a violin of a, of, a, of a musician or the instrument of a musician. Um, interesting example of that we were doing, you know, when we were saying the office uh, and Angela suggested that we bow a little bit uh, at the glory, at the glory be. So um, that is a, a remnant of the prostration, the full prostration of the body that was part of monastic uh, tradition. See references to it in in the Rule of Saint Benedict, and still is there in Orthodox monasticism. Uh, where else do we see it? Islam, yes. Yeah, the salat, the five times a day of prayer, and the sujud was is this prostration of the whole person, and the forehead has to touch the ground. 
And in ordination, yes, there are other there are other times when we do it, or Good Friday, yes, little little remnants. Well, they're simply little signs that the body is is a, an instrument of prayer. And of course, when you do actually prostrate, it uh, it does change your mind, changes the way you 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 think and feel. Uh, it's humbling, humus, earth. And um, it's very similar to the sun, the sun posture in, in yoga, I think. So, um, the, uh, the, 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 there's, there's, there are still remnants of uh, an asceticism or practices, physical practices, integrated with, with prayer. Um, there was a similar story. I was once was taken to an AA meeting by a friend, and um, they have these sort of meetings where you they let people in, sometimes observers. And um, there was a very moving talk by somebody who had uh, been struggling with his addiction for a long time. And he said he had given up and he bought a bottle and he was going to stay at home and um, drink it. And he phoned his uh, sponsor. And his sponsor said, I've been telling you for years, pray. And the guy said, I, I don't pray. I don't believe in God. I don't believe any of that stuff. So stop telling me to pray. And his sponsor said, you've got to pray. He said, if you don't pray, you're going to, you're going to de destroy yourself. So he said, get down on your knees now and pray. So in total desperation and feeling a complete idiot and complete fake, he got down on his knees and he prayed. He didn't know what he said. He didn't know who he was praying to. But it, that was the turning point for him. Fake it to make it. You know, there are times we don't want to meditate. And we sit down and, we, you know, maybe halfway through the meditation, you feel this is a complete waste of time. I might as well watch EastEnders. <laughs> and, but you, you know, you, you fake it to make it. This is the discipline of, of the ascetical practice. Um, then there are other, other, other aspects, of course, uh, of asceticism we could look at briefly. One would be food, fasting. Well, this is the first period in history where the, you know, the uh, poor are fatter than the, the rich in many parts of the world. Um, I was in Tesco's the other day and I saw this in the poor part of London and I saw this young, young mother with or four kids and with her shopping basket piled up with frozen pizzas and all the stuff that's bad for you and for her kids. So uh, nutrition, something that on the whole doctors are not trained in. I think they have one class in nutrition during their, uh, their trainings, I was told. Uh, nutrition is part of asceticism. It's respecting, caring for the body, saying no. They were very kind, they gave me two packets of chocolate-covered raisins in my room. 
So I had to be very controlled, because I like them. <laughs> and not asking for any more, please don't give any more. <laughs> so, you know, that's self-control. And it's knowing you can take a few, but you've got to then hide it from yourself so you don't, you don't eat any more. Because we know that certain types of food or quantities of food are bad for us. Why are they bad for us? Not because they're pleasurable, but because bad, bad food, too much or of, of the bad stuff, is going to cloud your vision of the horizon. It's going to make you sleepy during meditation. It's going to create physical distractions, even maybe your mental distractions. So, the respect we have for the body, when I became a monk, John Main, I was still smoking right, right up to my last day of freedom. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I, I tried to give up many times and I hadn't. And, uh, so I was talking about it with Father John and he said, he said the perfect thing. He said, well, you know, you're, you're committing yourself to this path, to meditation is central to this path. And you can't be doing something, you don't want to be doing something that is self-contradicting. And in meditation, you are learning to love yourself. Well, smoking is doing harm to yourself. It's not loving yourself. And you are meditating because you want to find the liberty of the spirit. And smoking is an addiction. And it reduces your freedom. And he said it so non-judgmentally, but so clearly, that it, it snapped, yeah, it snapped the addiction for me. I still, you know, suffered. I still had a craving for cigarettes for, for a long time afterwards. And I would smell them or have a cup of coffee. I would still feel the craving. But I was, I was over it. So, uh, so food is a, is, a, is, a, is a primary focus of Christian and other asceticism. Um, in most, most uh, spiritual traditions, there's a, um, a particular value given to vegetarianism. Um, I was pleased to know that the Dalai Lama is not a vegetarian. Uh, he tried to be. And, uh, and it wasn't, you know, his, he, he, doctors advised him not to, because Tibet, of course, is not vegetarian. Um, Pope, I read recently, Pope Urban V, I think in the 12th or 13th century, one of the popes of Avignon, tried to suppress vegetarianism <laughs> in the church for some reason. I don't know why he took it. And... Uh, so the monks who were practicing it, I think Carthusian monks, uh, protested. And a group of 100-year-old monks walked across Italy, <laughs> vegetarians, to, uh, to show him that this was actually good for you. <laughs> and uh, he lifted the ban. So, you know, you don't have to become a vegetarian if you meditate, but I think you will, you will notice that there are certain foods, there are certain quantities, there are certain patterns of eating, processed food, junk food, the things we get addicted to, uh, that are in themselves inappropriate or unhelpful to your 
to your meditation, to your daily practice. And I think, you know, sleepiness uh, in meditation may simply be due to the fact you didn't get enough sleep the night before. But, you know, one thing to look at is your diet as well. Or too many hours in front of the computer. Or too much time on the sofa watching the TV. You know, these are things one, one naturally becomes aware of as soon as you bring in the essential asasis of the Christian life, which is prayer. So we can look at some, some others uh, later maybe briefly, but um, the word that captures this in modern vocabulary is lifestyle. And very interestingly, the people who are most interested in what we would call ascetical practices are who? Who do you think? Yes, young people. Young people. They, they. Uh, I was talking to one the other day. Who says he, 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 he takes a cold shower in the morning. And uh, I said, Why on earth do you want to take a cold shower? In the morning? <laughs> and he just said, sort of, Well, I, it makes me feel better. It's made him feel better. There's no punishment involved in that at all. He just he felt the need to be more awake, and this was his way of doing it. So different, different, uh, different traditional practices of controlling. I, I know a lot of young people who, who, who do regular fasting, not even for religious reasons, but for uh, spiritual reasons, even quite unselfconsciously, because it, it, it makes them feel better. And that's the purpose of asceticism, is to feel better. The motives may be different from those that you see in the slightly different versions in lifestyle magazines, but the underlying, the underlying purpose and the underlying result uh, is the same. Lifestyle. Meditation changes your life. Let's end with this bit of this hymn uh, from... St. Simeon, <coughs> the new theologian, I quoted last night as well. It picks up some of the, what I've been saying about the relationship that meditation uh, makes us more clear about our relationship to the world. This is hymn 39 to God. Your beauty is impossible your appearance incomparable, your timeliness is unutterable, your glory beyond words, your character, Christ Master, is good and meek, and lies above the thoughts of all the earthborn. And because of this, love and yearning toward you more than conquer all love and yearning of mortals. Insofar as you lie above visible things, Saviour, so much also is yearning for you greater and completely covers and includes all human love. 
and turns away passionate love for carnal pleasures and quickly repels all yearnings. For yearning of the passions is truly darkness and the practice of shameful sins is deep night. But, Saviour, passionate love and love for you are light. For this reason, when love springs up in God-loving souls, immediately and within, she produces the day of dispassion, my God. She chases away the darkness of passions and pleasures. O marvel, O paradoxical work of God Most High, and power of secretly accomplished mysteries, you generously give to us both incorruptible and perishable realities, and you give earthly things, God, with heavenly things, both present at the same time.